Thank you, Brother Ryan. What a, what a great song that leads us to our message today. I've entitled Boots on the Ground. Well, I, uh, here's kind of what happened. About a week ago Saturday, I called my, my son, Brett, your lead pastor, and uh, he said, Dad, I've got to make a special trip. And he knew we were coming through Cedarville because our oldest granddaughter uh, graduated yesterday. And plus, she was commissioned as a second lieutenant. She'll be working in uh, physical therapy with some of the soldiers and and so we're grateful for that. So just uh, we were planning on being here yesterday afternoon. So he said, why don't you take the pulpit for me? So happy to do that. And then, then we're making uh, another eight-hour trip at the end of this week to teach at a biblical counseling conference up near Buffalo, New York. And then back to southern Maryland where we're from. So a little bit about us. Uh, I'm a full-time associate pastor working on uh, working as a um, in the area of evangelism and counseling with the oldest son, Chad. He's two years older than Brett. And uh, we, our church is in Hollywood, Maryland. So for 10 years, I'd pastored a church in Visalia, California. So when I moved to Southern Maryland and I said I was moving to Hollywood, Maryland, they said, yeah, Pastor Alden finally is losing his mind. And that is right next to California, Maryland. Those are true. I don't know why they named it that, but uh, that's a true story. Now, there's a few things you can do when you get almost age 73. You can talk about your family. What are you going to do with me? I'm going to be gone next week. So anyway, I I wanted to put up a slide here. So let's get the, the, yeah, this is, this is, I, I told my wife Sue, by the way, he's a little bit under the weather, couldn't be here this morning, but I said, can you go to his album and, and, uh, and find one? He's about three and a half here. And when he gets back, I'm going to show this to him. I said, you were such a cute kid. When you were, what happened? <laughs> so he, he lets us tease him. So then uh, we'll go to the next slide. And uh, here's the four kids. Brett, they're on the left. Kendra's our only daughter. She's in Denver. And uh, we lost Drew in, in 2008 in an accident. And then Chad is the one that uh, I, I work with now. So as a father, I'm taking orders from both sons. This is a difficult assignment, but uh, they're, they're, they're great kids. And then, uh, then the next slide. Okay, here we are. I, I'm there in the background. There's, here's my wife, Sue, daughter, Kendra. There's Marissa and Chad, and they have seven children, so... People ask, well, why did, you, why did you move to Maryland? You could have moved here, work with, the, work with either son. I said, it's real simple. He had seven grandchildren. Brett only had four. <laughs> it's very simple, very simple math. But we love being here, of course, with, with Brett and Katie. All right, and the next slide. There There's now 21 letters. I think there were two that were missing. That's me in the background and uh, my wife. There's Brett, Katie in the background. And then here's the 21 of us. This was in Denver about three years ago, and uh, all serving the Lord, and we were so privileged. My mother came from a, a strong Mennonite background. My father came to Christ, and so right now there's 65 lairds all serving the Lord. So do we have a responsibility? We have a tremendous responsibility. So next slide. What are you going to do when you try to get all of them together? <laughs> so I've been trying to find an RV, and I finally found one via Reader's Digest, and if you'll count, there's enough for 14 grandkids. And the other thing I told the sons, I said, you know what? The only thing I'm asking for uh, uh, Grandma Sue and me is to have the master bedroom in the back <laughs> with, with his master bath. You guys can share the one-eighth 
bathroom on the left side. So <laughs> how somebody comes up with that, I don't know. But anyway, that, that's a little bit about us lairds. But what a, what a, what a joy it is to, to keep track of what's happening at Calvary Bible Church and just hear the wonderful things uh, that have been happening in Kalamazoo. I never forget the first opportunity we had coming to the city when we were helping Brett move in, and we were staying at a, I forget the name of the hotel, but there was a young man, he was homeless, and Brett immediately started witnessing to him, and that just brings a great uh, delight to a, a father's soul. So that's what I want to talk to you today, is the title, Boots on the Ground. Now the background for this is that we're doing an evangelism series there at Truth Bible Church in Southern Maryland. And so uh, my son, Pastor Chad, asked, Dad, would you lead off the series? And so uh, just to talk about evangelism in general, well, that was a great delight to me to do that. So uh, I preached this very message just two weeks ago and, of course, in the first service today. But if you're, if you're looking at your notes, you can see that before Jesus ascended into heaven, Acts 1, 6 to 11, he spoke of the disciples' power through the Holy Spirit that would enable them to be witnesses even to the remotest part of the earth. How then are we to become prepared to be truthful, spirit-filled witnesses that faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ? As a church, what biblical principles are essential in our strategy to have more boots on the ground? So the first thing you see here is, is firemen. Now, if, if you look at the phrase boots on the ground, it, it probably comes, uh, they guess it, the origin comes, uh, uh, comes from World War I, and a soldier would have boots. And, of course, now uh, it's, it, it's become, very, it's, it's become a, a very uh, typical uh, idiom that talks about boots on the ground for all kinds of things. So last week we had evangelist Mike Gendron, who came here, he told me, in 2017, did just a great job for us. And so... Uh, in our neighborhood, we passed out 72 flyers to every one of our neighbors. And, and the, some of the young kids got involved doing that in their neighborhood. That's boots on the ground, as we call it. And uh, uh, political figures, with they're getting ready, hoping that people will vote for them. They'll get as many people to have boots on the ground. So it's becoming a, becoming a, a pretty common idiom. Who's going to make the phone calls? Can't just have people from the top down saying, well, we need to do this. How do we actually get out there and do it? And our, our church of 175 to 200 people uh, just sent out 22,000 flyers uh, because we're in St. Mary's County, very, very strong Catholic community, and some, some great people there, by the way, and, but yet we wanted to reach them with the gospel, and so Mike Gendron came and, and ministered to them. But how do you get boots on the ground? And it, more importantly, as I looked at it, what are, the, what are the major principles that help us to have boots on the ground? So what I did, I went back, and these seven principles I'm going to give you today are the, are the key principles God has used in, in my life of ministry. I think it's 48 years of, of, of ministry. And um, what, what, what was it that motivated me to go from being a, a piano major, which was a, a great thing, nothing wrong with being a piano major, just can't make any money at it, uh, and, uh, and switch to religion and uh, then become a youth pastor, an associate, and a senior pastor. So what were the principles that helped me in evangelism? So I, I wanted to give you these seven principles. The first one is this. Don't add or subtract from the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, one of the great passages in the Bible. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And sometimes we forget verse 10 that says, we are his workmen. God, God, God saves us by faith to work for him. So this verse, no doubt, is one of the greatest passages on salvation in the Bible. It clearly states that salvation cannot be obtained by anything other than faith in Christ by his grace. This means we bring no bargaining chips to the table. It's not based on any merit of our own, but how many times do we hear this great passage quoted and then we don't, we fail to read verse 10, that we are his workmen. But the question is, what kind of faith do we have? Is it, is it truly a saving faith? And you can see in the screen there, there's, you, you can add to the gospel. You can say, you must be baptized and join my church to be a true believer. That's not true. Now, I, I've, I've read the doctrinal statement here at this church. It's wonderful. It's virtually identical to ours. Yes, we want you to be baptized. Yes, this church wants you to be baptized, but only if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. And becoming a member is important, very important but it, it, it'll, it'll no way get you through the gates of heaven. So don't add to the gospel. But don't subtract from it either. People say it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. How many have heard that one? I mean, that is one of the most, you know, all roads lead you there. And, and now we're finding even uh, some of the more well-known evangelical leaders are saying, you know, hey, let's, let's all get together. We're all brothers and sisters. Really? Well, we are brothers and sisters in terms of humanity, but not in terms of the gospel. Not all roads lead to heaven. What good is it to have boots on the ground if we're in the wrong army? We must get the gospel right. Oh, how easy it is to bring people to a decision for Christ without having them count the cost of what it means in Mark 1.15 to repent and believe the gospel. This is why uh, our core classes at our church, and I'm sure you have them here as well, Fundamentals of the Faith, How to Interpret the Bible, One-to-One -one Discipleship. Uh, I, I teach a biblical counseling course. These are all important, but we can't add or subtract from the gospel. We've got to make sure we're in the right army. And then secondly, be intentional ab about the Great Commission. Whoop, went too far. So be intentional about the, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Remember that great passage, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Be intentional about the Great Commission. How easy it is for us to forget that this is the Great Commission, not the Great Suggestion. Unfortunately, all the statistics bear out the sad fact that for the average Christian, the, the Great Commission has become the Great Omission. It's an indisputable fact. I've read this so many times. You can go Gallup poll, you can do poll after poll. That across America, less than 5% of all born-again believers ever personally lead someone to Christ. And the statistics are even worse when we evaluate the new believers being effectively followed up and discipled. Now, I know many of you have, and that's, that's wonderful. Some of you uh, before, uh, before the service have told me about some of that mentoring. Wonderful. 
But you say, Pastor, what about all the megachurches that are popping up in many different places? Isn't that proof that much evangelism is taking place? I hope so. Unfortunately, though, that's not the case because even though we want to be very fair not to categorize all megachurches, there, there are some large churches. You're, you're a large church and, and you're doing a great job. I, I know some of the factual things that this church is doing to reach out with the gospel. Thank God for that. I, I hope you grow to be larger than ever. But that's not true in many churches. We just became aware of a, a church in our community, mega church. And we found out, one of, the, one of the individuals that came to our church said that they personally saw where the church had decided they were going to remove some of the hymns that had the word blood in them. Really? An evangelical, so-called Bible-believing church, and we don't want anything with blood? Yeah, what about the great hymns that are power in the blood? And all the verses in Hebrews that, that talk about without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So we, we, we have to become more intentional. We've got to shake the bushes. When, uh, when we planted a church in North Denver where the, the, uh, the, the, the children grew up, we knocked on 1,500 doors, to, started totally from scratch, met in a little mobile home clubhouse for three years, then on to a junior high school for nine years, then finally got our own building after year 12. That's about where we're at right now in Truth Bible Church, so pray for us. But we have to shake the bushes. And it's an indisputable fact that God is using those startup churches. Why? Because we have to go out and shake the bushes. We have to have boots on the ground. And we tend not to do that as we grow larger. That brings me to one of the earth-shaking parables that I read as a college student called The Parable of the Life-Saving Station. Many of you have probably heard it. It's called The Parable of the Lighthouse. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they went out day or night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in a large building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it as a sort of club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin, and some spoke a strange language, and the beautiful new club was considered messed up. 
So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal life pattern of the club. But some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the life of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that occurred in the old. They evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. If you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, only now most of the people drown. Amazing parable, and it's amazing how close that is to what, what happens in church history. I'm a student of church history, and I'm just amazed when, as we drove through some of those older Ohio and Indiana cities coming up, the large old churches, and I, I had to wonder how many of them are really and truly preaching the gospel with, with boots on the ground. Third, keep our spiritual accounts up to date. Acts 24, 16. Would you like to memorize a verse just right here this morning? Raise, raise your hand. You, you'd really, I'm not seeing enough hands. All right, this one's easy. I give it in counseling all the time. I always take pains. Let me say it again. I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and men. Isn't that easy? Let's say it again. For I always take pains to have a clear conscience both before God and before men. What a simple, powerful verse uh, coming from the, the Gospel Luke. So here's the point. We simply will not do much evangelism if we're at odds with God or at odds with each other. The gospel is all about reconciliation with God, and that does not change just because we've been saved from spiritual death and hell. We have, through Jesus Christ, been reconciled to God as believers. And you've heard, uh, the, my, my, my kids have heard me say many times, always be moving toward the relationship, not away from it. If you can help it, move toward them. That's what the scripture's all about. Be careful and no one misses the grace of God that any bitter root grows up that's, that defiles many. We look at root sins in our uh, biblical counseling training program and I tell our trainees, I said, there's far more people who've gone down the wrong road because of bitterness than any other sin I can think of. And they've also heard me say, if you get a PhD in anything, get it in forgiveness. That, that doesn't mean that there's not lots of abuse going out there. It doesn't mean we ignore that. There's sometimes that as much as you would want to do, you can't change it, but be moving toward the relationship, not away from it. Always be moving toward God. Don't get caught up in fighting. That is fighting in your marriage, fighting with friends, fighting at work. Don't be known as a fighter, but as a peacemaker. Now, don't forget, this does not mean that we don't fight for principles and 
stand with those who are taking very unpopular stands. There's a lot of things. We have to stand together. We've got to have boots in the ground. I mean, I don't know about you, but the, the issue of, of the unborn child is a major issue. I don't know how many times the kids were with me on, in, in, in the second or third week in Denver, Colorado, as they grew up for the pro-life movement. There, there are issues to stand for, but we don't bomb clinics either. We're, we're peacemakers. We go in the love of Christ. Friends and families may disagree with our positions, but never let it be a problem of your disposition. Let people say, you know what? I didn't agree with him, but he was a kind man. Ephesians 4.15, tell the truth in love. So on your slide there, you can see, choose your battles wisely because if you fight them all, you'll be too tired to win the really important ones. You're too busy fighting. Work on that marriage. Work on that relationship. Forgive. And don't forget the gospel. In some of the most difficult times in my life, struggles, too much to go into today. But it's sometimes as I was walking or running, I'd be reminded of this principle, all than just because you, are, you have a problem, God has not rescinded the Great Commission. He doesn't say, oh, look, in the next five or six years, you don't have to be sharing the gospel. You've got a problem. No, he's not rescinded the Great Commission. Don't get involved in, in giving yourself excuses. One of my wonderful mentors, Ron Ortley of the Navigators, what an amazing story. He came to Christ first. His, he grew up in a little, little town called Hamilton, Montana. His dad was a Cadillac dealer and everything else you could sell in a small town. And, but he, he faithfully shared the gospel with his father. Back in those days, do any of you remember the old Sony five-inch five reels? Boy, I'm really showing us a few of you are shaking your head. What is that? <clears throat> That's before cassette tapes and... And we would send them out. And Ron would send these to his father, share, gospel, uh, share the gospel with him and, and be cordial and the things were going on in his family. His father came to Christ at age 53, lived to be 73. And in those 20 years, his father led 47 other people to Christ. It's an amazing story. And I'm so eager to, when I get to heaven to find out the, the lineage, which is another story here how God... Uh, brought my m mother's family and my father's family to Christ. Amazing story. But, but keep your spiritual accounts up to date. And four, ask the Lord for a, for a broken heart. If you don't remember anything, about this, anything more about this message, I hope you'll get this one. Ask the Lord for a broken heart. Psalm 126, 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. These verses changed my life. I think I mentioned earlier, I was a piano major when I started in school, and about halfway through, a group of us said, we need to be learning how to do evangelism. And... Tell, I, I tell people who say, you're, you're afraid of doing evangelism? So was I. You know how we got started? This group of about 10 to 12 of us, we, we took Bible tracks down to downtown Oakland City, 
put them in the windshield wipers by in, in the bar parking lot and ran. <laughs> That's what we did. That's how we got started. And then we started learning some principles on, on soul winning. Uh, I, I brought with me the classic book by Dr. John R. Rice. Uh, one of your readers there told me that he read the book. Written in 1941, Dr. John R. Rice. He starts out the very first sentence, it is the wise person who takes the long look. Besides the Bible, this is, this is the quote that my kids have heard me say more than any other quote outside the Bible. It is the wise person who takes the long look. Because Proverbs 11.30 says, the, it, the, the, he that winneth souls is wise. And that was the whole principle of Dr. Rice's book. And he, then he built the book around this great passage, Psalm 126, 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears. So uh, there's some other great books, like just recently, here's a book 70 years later, The Brokenhearted Evangelist by Jeremy Walker. You know what they all say? God isn't looking for talkers. He's looking for weepers. So what, what happened is we, uh, those of us in that evangelism group, we, we started training other people. We'd first have some pretty good-sized classes, and we'd learn after a few months, where are they? They're not there. And then we began examining the fact, were we really emphasizing the, the, the principles of having a broken heart. So we started having five o'clock prayer meetings and asking God to, to break our hearts for those who were lost there in the Oklahoma City area. And you know that out of that group has come pastors and missionaries? And that's where I tell people, you don't need first to be a talker to be a soul winner. You need to be a weeper. Weepers will talk, but will talk in a way that reaches out with the truth, love, and compassion. You know, if you, if you come up to, to people, as uh, Katie's father, dear, our, our beloved Brad Wyckoff, passed away a few years ago. And I picked up from him, he will start many of his conversations with, I'm just one of those rescued sinners. It's pretty hard to get mad at someone who says, I'm a rescued sinner. And if you tell the truth in love, I mentioned this two weeks ago in our church. In, in six years that I've been in Southern Maryland, done lots of airplane rides and car rides, and, and you'll hear in a minute different fishing ponds and lakes and Chesapeake Bay, the place I've been, handing out tracts as much as I can. I've only had one person out of the hundreds I've given tracts to that said, no thank you. And that's all they said, no thank you. 99% of people are eager. Yesterday morning, I was coming out of the hotel room there in, anybody know where Xenia, Ohio is? Okay, so we came out of that, and I was, you know, I was doing something really important. I was trying to get down there and get my breakfast. That was really important. But I had it, I, you know, when I, if, if I don't put a track in my pocket, it's like I didn't put my belt on. And so I get to the elevator and here comes a young guy just dashing as quick as he can and he, he makes it on there. I said man you are fast that's incredible so we go down didn't say too much I said I hope you have a good day and I said by the way I don't think it's a, a coincidence I'd like you to take this little track I said, oh, okay thank you now I don't think it was a coincidence to you that man barely made the elevator that's probably the only time I'll see him in my life but ask the Lord for a, a broken heart. And then, then fifth, 
be intent, uh, not only be intentional about the Great Commission, keep your spiritual account short, but number five, do not diminish the reality of hell. How sad that is. Even some of the evangelical leaders of our day have saying, you know, it's, it's just a figure of speech. And, you know, I want to say to them, if that's just a figure of speech, then why, can you say, why can't you say that heaven is just a figure of speech? And, and all the words that Jesus said about, about punishment, even the great passage, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Turn briefly, if you would, with me to John, excuse me, to, to Revelation chapter 20. What a, what a powerful passage as, as we see the, one of the closing verses here in, in the New Testament. Revelation 20, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were open, another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in, in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Now, folks, I could tell you humanly, I, I wish that wasn't true. But it is true. Because I believe in the inspired word of God that there is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to shun. And so that, that's the question. Do you really believe there is a heaven to gain and hell to, to, uh, a hell to shun? So beside that quote by John R. Rice about the wise man takes the long look, there was a gentleman came through Oklahoma City, and his name was Ponder Gillen. And I, I have memorized this, and I put it on the screen for you. And he said, unless we are firmly convinced of the terrible consequences that await those who die without Christ, we will be scarcely moved to do much about it. If you're not convinced about it, you know, there's cults that they don't believe there's a hell. So what is there? Just live it up. And I am, I am grateful for a, a Wayne Sawtell at Rocky Mountain Lake Baptist Church in Denver, Colorado. And as a five and six and a seven-year-old, I could hear him say, are you really sure you're saved? And they weren't afraid to talk about hell. And of course, they talked a lot about heaven. But do not diminish the reality of hell. John Ankerberg, John Weldon, right? Whatever happened to hell? Facts, uh, facts on life after death, great work. But think about this, Bertrand Russell, why I am not a Christian. I'm gonna tell you, he's a believer today. Not a Christian believer, but he believes there is a hell to shun. So yes, we always want to focus on a heaven to gain, but we must never forget that there is a hell to avoid. But shouldn't we talk about the joy of finding God? Indeed! But when we find God, we'll realize that he is such a loving God because he sent his son to die for us that we might be forgiven and escape the justice and terrible wrath of God that is so deserved. John Blanchard's written a book I'd recommend to you as well. Whatever happened to hell? 
Whatever happened to it in preaching from many pulpits? Do you believe? If we don't believe in that, why, why would this church invest? I've heard of the great missions program you have, and we're a younger startup church, but we're, we're sending three missionaries to New Guinea. Why would we do that if we don't believe there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun? And then sixth, humbly learn the art of soul winning. Humbly learn the art of soul winning. And I take us back to, to Mark chapter one, and such a great passage as well, one of my favorites, beginning with verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. By the way, I'm, I'm amazed at how many gospel tracts don't mention the word repentance. And I've gone through your tracks, or I'm really glad this church emphasizes repent and believe the gospel. Metanoia means a change of mind. And of course it's by grace, but it can't be easy believism either. And he goes on to say, and as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in, in, in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants, and they went away to follow him. Humbly learn the art of soul winning. Yes, there's an art to it. It's like fishing. There's a difference. My two sons, my three, I had three sons. The two sons, they, they like fishing too, but not as much as I do. I don't get tired of fishing. Ask my wife. I can go and sit by a, a pond or a lake and nothing's biting. And I keep thinking, they're going to be biting an hour. My wife is sitting devouring books. And, and she, she wants to be with me. She doesn't happen to like fishing. My kids say they like fishing, but they like catching fish. And there is a difference. But Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. When we come to the conclusion of our study in, on Daniel, uh, we, we observe that uh, great chapter saying, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like stars forever and ever. Now, I brought along with me just, I have got a fisherman in, my, in our church there. He's so good. You talk about whether it's uh, catching croakers or, or a catfish or rockfish. He's so good at it. I'm just one of those old trout fishermen, and so this is my favorite bait right here. Doesn't that look beautiful? It goes in the water, drops down, and they get on. And if they're not biting, then you put dip and glow. Now, I promise you, if I took the cap off of this, none of you could fall asleep. It is amazing the scent that comes from this, and that's what you do. Now, there's other things. Someday they're not biting, and so you take a panther martin. You know, you do that. And sometimes you've got to get a little lower, throw it farther out there, so you've got to make sure you've got enough weight to get out there. But just about a month ago, I was fishing at a place called Hughesville Lake. Caught one fish in four and a half hours. Normally you get your limit. It's pretty good there. And here comes a young guy walking across. He's got his whole, you know, 
it, it's full. He's, he's got his whole limit. I said, how long have you been here? Oh, about an hour, hour and a half. How long have you been at it? Oh, about two weeks. He's been fishing for two weeks. Well, how'd you do it? Oh, they told me that these little, uh, these are called mouse tails. And you put the hook in there and it kind of flings in the water and they would go biting for it. So guess who practically begged this guy uh, to give me a mouse tail? And he was happy to do it. But guess what? He was one of the four or five that day that I handed him a gospel tract. Because Jesus said, you're fishing, but I'm going to make you fishers of men. And the first time I came here, these are not new that I've taken from your track. Every time I come here, I steal from your gospel rack in the back there. <laughs> because I just love them. Do all roads lead to God? It's got the name Calvary Bible Church. The amazing story of amazing grace. I mean, when I get home, I'm going to tell our son, we don't have a permanent facility. I said, I want a gospel rack back there as soon as we can get one. The Roman road, and of course, my favorite, Steps to Peace with God. And you have... Uh, you have a little track that uh, I love this one. It's kind of the bridge illustration as well, knowing God personally. Become a pamphlet pusher. That's not too hard. How hard is it to leave one for, you, for, the, for the waitress and leave her a good tip and then run? If you're of that, you know, do what I did. But humbly learn the art of soul winning. And you'll get better at it. Notice that humility is what makes it. We're not out there to count the notches on our salvation belt, but to realize that God is the one who works through us for his glory, never our own. Is there a witness to that? This is essential because none of us are totally solo in our soul winning efforts. Neither can we disciple someone all by ourselves. It's a team effort. That's why I love the local church. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, 7 and 9. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth, for we are God's fellow workers. So don't let this become an excuse for not learning how to fish. As someone has told me, we, we must not take the view that someone else will lead them to Christ. Really? The, the, the facts are, by the way, they've done research. The average person that comes to know the Lord was witnessed by anywhere from four to six people before they made that commitment. Where are you, in the, where are you at in the chain? Are you, are you a part of that chain? Are you casting the line out there? I just wrote down some of the books. Winning Ways, Walt Hendrickson. Let's Go Fishing, Gentle Persuasion. These are books. Evangelism of Lifestyle, Inviting Your Neighbors Over. The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. I love doing the, the four-part investigative studies. Done it with scores and scores of times with small groups and individuals that will take four weeks to examine who Christ is in the resurrection and so forth. And then finally, like Andrew, joyfully introduce others to Jesus. I love this about Andrew. He was not in the inner circle like his brother and certainly not the most prominent of the 12, but I like that we observe in this man's life virtually every time you see his name mentioned, he is bringing people to Jesus. Do you like that? You know, I love sports, but I just wasn't really very good at most of it. I love golf, tennis, fishing. You know my biggest claim to fame on the basketball court? I was the sixth man on the B team. <laughs> but I learned in high school how to begin to share my faith. You don't have to be 
some, somebody with a silver tongue. But Andrew could not keep Jesus to himself. He was a soul winner. He had a humble missionary heart. He's willing to take the back seat. He's my second string hero. He started with his brother Peter. Then in John 6, 8 to 9, we find him bringing the young boy who had five loaves, two fish to Jesus. And in John 12, 22, we find Andrew once again pointing a group of Greeks who had come for the Passover in Jerusalem to Jesus. He was willing to do the simple things, but they were the right things that count. And I love this quote by Warren Wiersbe. Quote, there would have been no Pentecost had Andrew not quietly witnessed to Peter and brought him to Christ. Sometimes we forget that, the, the, the people on the second string. What's the bottom line about Andrew? He couldn't keep Jesus to himself. He was willing to live in a shadow of more famous disciples, and he was very content to, to joyfully introduce others to Jesus. So I, I want to ask you this morning, what about you in terms of boots on the ground? I want to ask you this morning to, to think through of these principles we've talked to you. Are, are you intentional about the gospel? Are, are you making sure you're on the, on the right team? Are, are you making sure that, that you're, you're, you're fighting the right battles? And I want to close by a parable that was so instrumental in, in helping me see the importance of, of it's called I, So I Stay by the Door by Sam Shoemaker in, entitled An Apology for My Life. I stay near the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There is no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they as much as I crave to know where the door is and all that so many ever find is only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, yet they never find it. So I stay near the door. The most important thing in the world is the door for which men find God. The most important thing that any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the man's own touch. Go in, great saints. Go all the way in. Go way down into the cavernous cellars and way up into the spacious attics. It's a vast, roomy house, this, this house where God is. Go to the deepest of hidden casements. And I don't want you to think this doesn't mean don't go deep into God's word. I recommend it to all my sons to go to Bible college and seminary. It's important. But it's also important not to forget the Great Commission. And I know the depths and heights of God and call outside to the rest of us how wonderful it is. Sometimes I take a deeper look in, sometimes venture a little farther, but my place seems to be closer to the opening, so I stay near the door. I admire the people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet even found the door. As for me, I shall take my old accustomed place near enough to God to hear him and know he is there, but not so far from men as not to hear them. And remember, they are too. Where? Outside the door. Thousands of them, millions of them, but more important for me, one of them, two of them, ten of them, whose hands I am intended 
to put on the latch so I shall stay by the door and wait for those who seek it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper so I stay near the door. Heavenly Father, help our hearts to be broken for so many who have not seen the door to life where you yourself said, I am the door. I am the door. And Lord, help us to be those who, though we study deeply and learn your word, help us never to forget that great commission and that we'd be fishers of men and that we'd be men and women and boys and girls who have boots on the ground, all for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.